The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I don't want to take a lot of time here, but just, I thought it might be useful. Just sit back, as it were, and listen uh, as I, I'm just moving through the document and, and pulling out the hortatory elements. Now, we have to be careful there, too, that we don't go to another, uh, to a certain imbalance and, and, and abstract the exhortation. But uh, if I'm right, and I think I probably am in the assess, assessment, that this aspect has tended to not to be given the attention that it should, and it, it's constitutive importance for the document as a whole, we, we need to be alerted to that. And uh, let me suggest, because this is a concern I also have, um, as I do this, that um, you uh, be aware how inevitably it creates or it communicates to us a certain situation. If you will, the imperatives imply, almost as it were, um, uh, Suggest an indicative, an indicative. Um, two one. We must we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Let me back up and, and, and underline one other factor, and this is crucially important. Um, to keep in mind um, the whole matter of preaching on Hebrews. Remember that this is exhortation addressed to the church, to those who have made Christian confession. It's not to an indiscriminate off, uh, indiscriminate audience uh, in the sense uh, that uh, those targeted here are those, as we said, who have made Christian confession. We must pay close attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. Uh, two, three. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that has a close uh, correspondence to 1225. Uh, three, one. We are to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Uh, and with that, compare 12, three. Uh, further in chapter three, three, twelve. Take care so, there, um, so that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. With which, look at 10.31. 3.13. Encourage one another daily so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That's not strictly speaking exhortation, but you can see that the, uh, uh, the controlling conditionality, the, the, uh, the implied uh, imperative to hold fast is, is very clear there. We're going to want to look carefully at that verse. We have become partakers if we hold fast uh, to the end. 4.1 uh, Let us fear 
so that while a promise remains of entering his rest, no one of you should seem to have come short of it. Also expressed substantially in 4.11. 4.14, let us hold fast our confession, which is about what 10.23 says. 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Uh, 6.1, let us press on to perfection, as that flows out of 5.11 through 14 with a strong hortatory note. 6.4 through 6, it's impossible to renew again to repentance those who have fallen away, is the gist of what the writer says there. 10.26 and 27, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. 35 and 36. Do not throw away your confidence, for you have need of endurance. 12.1. Let us lay aside every encumbrance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 12, 5, and 6. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. 12, 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So that, uh, that mosaic, if you will, has its own, um, its own weight. Now, um, to... Uh, Back away from this uh, total, uh, this picture. Look at it uh, uh, in, in somewhat uh, wider perspective. The point of my emphasis here, uh, the thrust of the discussion, is not to question uh, the thoroughly biblical character of the emphasis. For instance, that uh, thinking of our institution and its its history, the emphasis that Machen had to make so much over the course of his career. That is the emphasis, uh, again and again as you read Machen, uh, the emphasis is that doctrine is prior to life. Uh, That valid Christian experience is based on solid, sound biblical teaching. And I'm I'm saying uh, my point now uh, is, is not to question that emphasis is thoroughly biblical character. But at the same time, it appears misleading to view Hebrews as basically an apologetic, polemical treatment of the, say, of the person of Christ and of the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. I'm saying it appears misleading to view Hebrews as an essentially an, an, an apologetic, polemical, uh, doctrinal treatment 
dealing primarily with the person of Christ, uh, and along with that, the superiority of the new covenant to the old, um, it's misleading to view uh, Hebrews as as then uh, being that and having then various imperatives sort of tacked on as secondary. So that, uh, let me put uh, get at my concern another way here, it's misleading uh, to view Hebrews in such a way such that the doctrine is intelligible apart from a consideration of the exhortation. Maybe that helps uh, communicate better here. As if we can go and, and lift out the materials, say, about the high priestly ministry of Christ um, and, and, and get at uh, that teaching as the writer would have us um, apart from the exhortation. Rather, we have to appreciate uh, the pervasive, or, or sh uh, and not only the pervasive presence of the Parnassus, but the way, it sh the way in which it shapes the shaping effect of the paranetic element for the document as a whole. So that in a very real sense, I'm wanting to argue, exhortation is an interpretive key, an important key to interpreting Hebrews, disclosing the purpose of the document to us, explaining its composition or structure. Because it's especially through the hortatory materials that we can discover the writer's assessment of the situation in which he and his readers find themselves. Or at least, uh, to put it, uh, um, we must at least put it this strongly, that it's just through the hortatory materials that we are appointed to an important component, uh, an indispensable component in the situation in which the readers find themselves. Or better, the situation in which the church finds itself. The church finds itself. So that the imperatives, uh, to make a point, we could put it this way, uh, the imperative is a key to understanding the indicative. The imperative connotes an indicative, a situation. And it is that situation to which uh, it's that situation uh, that it is a primary concern of the writer to apply the doctrine. And apart uh, from that situation, uh, the development of the doctrinal discussion is very definitely obscured. So all told, uh, I'm wanting to underline here that Hebrews provides us uh, with certainly uh, profound, extensive teaching, especially in the areas of Christology and soteriology, if you want to put it in, in dogmatic characters, categories, 
pre, uh, Hebrews does that, provides extensive teaching, but it does that, so to speak, only in solution with application. So that in this respect, Hebrews provides us with an exceptional and I think also we will want to say instructive example of the, inter- of the integration of doctrine and exhortation. The integration of doctrine and exhortation. Uh, Voss has a neat way of, of putting this, at least I find it neat. Uh, he says that what... Uh, that, that the right, what, what carries, that the document carries the conviction that doctrine is an effective means of grace. Doctrine as an effective means of grace. Or to put it yet another way, uh, the um, writer is concerned uh, and, and, and the composition of the document communicates in, in a striking way the inseparability of orthodoxy in orthopraxis. Uh, sound doctrine, correct doctrine, and correct living. Now, uh, in giving this, making this point, giving this emphasis, I have to be careful that I, I don't um, overdo it, as it were. Uh, this integration of doctrine and life uh, the, the, the inseparability, that is a general characteristic of the New Testament as a whole. But what I'm wanting to suggest is that that integration is present in Hebrews in a particularly uh, pronounced and structurally unique way. A structurally unique way. And that's what we want to be working at. But let me just uh, make... Um, Uh, a comparison here that may uh, illustrate a bit anyway. Uh, The most comparable materials looking into the Pauline corpus, the most comparable materials uh, would be what we have in, say, Romans or Ephesians. Where uh, we see as as illustrated what what, is... what is the rule? What the rule that seems illustrated there is that uh, Paul waits to finish his doctrinal argument before inserting the hortatory material, so that you have roughly Ephesians one through three um, doctrinal, four through six hortatory, or Romans um, one through eleven and twelve through fifteen. Um, doctrinal hortatory. Now, I would, you know, if, 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 if you were to respond, it's not quite that simple or clean, I would agree um, that, uh, in fact, there is the presence of hortatory materials um, throughout this didactic portion, but uh, at least relatively speaking, um, there is that uh, difference that gives Hebrews its, its distinctive character. So it's, it's, it's the reciprocity, the circularity of, of, of doctrine and practice that uh, um, 
comes through in Hebrews in a, uh, a distinctive way. Now, uh, just to uh, make a related point um, by picking up on a traditional debate about the, the document as a whole. Is Hebrews a letter or a sermon? Is it a letter or a sermon? And uh, you'll find difference, uh, differences of opinion on that. The, uh, but uh, it, it seems that you really, as you work at the document, can't press that distinction. Uh, so far as its structure is concerned, is that you have very, perhaps you've been, you've been struck by it, you read the beginning, it doesn't open like, say, a Pauline letter. It has a non-epistolary beginning, but uh, particularly if you look at the end of chapter, uh, as you look at the end of chapter 13, it, it closes like a letter. So that you find uh, good commentators taking decisive positions, such as Philip Hughes, that it's homiletic and epistolary. Or F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says, this epistle, which is a homily in written form with some personal remarks added at the end. So um, you, you really can't, um, I think, try to press that, that issue. Um, it begins like a sermon, ends like a letter. So that, um, that, that homiletic dimension is uh, undeniable here. All right, now all those, uh, these comments have all been related, uh, particularly where we began jumping off looking at the statement in uh, 13.22. Now, um, if there are no questions or comments, this would be three. Um, I'd like to have us look at 8.1, turn to 8.1. We'll make a couple of uh, exegetical observations on basic exegesis, and then uh, uh, draw a couple of um, conclusions. Kafalion, uh, let's leave that untranslated a moment. The kafalion in the things being said um, is this. We have such a high priest who has set down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of literally the holy things and of the true tent, the true tabernacle. Um, and as uh, the verse goes on to say, which the Lord has pitched or established, not man. Uh, now most important here is the use of the term kephalion, that's what draws us into this statement at this point in our discussion. Uh, the issue here is, ought we to translate it in the sense of summary, 
the summary of the things that is being said, or does it rather have the force of point or main point? Point or main point? Um, now, admittedly, there's not a, 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 a big uh, gap between these two. It's not like there's some decisive Rubicon for interpretation here. But I think uh, we definitely ought to go, as the translations do, with the sense of point or main point. And uh, that decision, I think, is suggested by the context. Again, the context is decisive. What follows for the writer, uh, as the writer develops things, is not so much a summary as further discussion as amplification of a central thought. Otherwise, he really doesn't sum, summarize, but he uh, continues developing a line of discussion. So I think we, we, we do want to render the main point in the things being said. Uh, notice, we can, that legomenois is a present participle. Uh, the things which we are saying, the things that we are presently discussing, the things that we are in uh, the course of dealing with. Hagion is an adjective you can see used um, as a noun. Um, substantively, not, not modifying anything, and is in genitive plural, neuter, uh, literally the holy things, which becomes, uh, we can see from other passages, is a kind of a technical sort of designation, and uh, is the holy things in the sense of taking collectively um, those things that are holy things because they are of the sanctuary or the holy place. So that's usually the way, looking at usage, you find the usage in chapter 9, say in 12, 24, and 25. So usually it has a sense then of um, usually translated sanctuary or holy place. So it's, it's parallel here. Uh, minister of the, of, the, of the sanctuary, the holy place, uh, and of the true tabernacle. So these ideas are very close to each other and are expanded on in, in chapter 9. Uh, while we're here, this isn't, looking at this statement, this isn't so related, uh, so directly related to the reason I want, uh, I'm, I'm drawing our attention to it, but it bears on something we'll be looking at later. Um, uh, everybody's sitting and listening and so on. Let me... Uh, provoke you here to some reaction. Uh, syntactically, uh, the term light or ghosts, uh, how in, in, in um, what is it parallel with in the construction? You may have to look at that statement a bit. 
Anybody have a strong uh, sense there? The point I'm wanting to bring out here is that it is not parallel to high priest, but it's parallel to the host clause. See, we're told two things about the high priest. The high priest is the direct object of Echelman. We have a high priest. He's a high priest who first is the one who's set down in the relative clause, set down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. And he is further then minister as high priest. He is further qualified in parallel to the one who sets down at the right hand of the throne as a, as a servant or a minister of the true tabernacle. Um, and um, what I think that points us to, the, the material significance of that, is that the ministerial activity you see in heaven, the ministerial activity of Christ in heaven, is not additional to the high priestly activity. It's not somehow parallel to the priestly activity, but that ministerial activity in the true tabernacle is a function, an aspect, a qualification of the high priestly activity. Now you might wonder um, uh, why I'm making a point about that. It might not seem something that you're ready to argue about or whatever, but a big issue that is debated, and we'll get into this much later, is uh, where, according to the writer of uh, Hebrews, um, how, how, does, how does the high priestly ministry of Christ, um, how does that relate to his heavenly ministry? And here, very clearly, the writer of, or his ascension ministry, here very clearly, um, the, uh, the ministry in the, uh, in, in the ascension, in the heavenly tabernacle, is a function of his high priestly activity. Yes, it's uh, um, Voss, um, the way Voss puts it, I think it's a neat expression. Uh, it comes up more in chapter 9. What the writer develops is a ritual geography, a ritual geography um, that makes very much of the distinction between heaven and earth, and, or the, as it's defined as the right hand of, of the throne of the majesty here. And um, that that is where um, Christ now is. Okay, now the, the New Jerusalem, I would, um, the reference to, the closest reference that you get to the New Jerusalem is. Um, is in chapter 12 when he talks about the church coming to Mount Zion. Um, the, uh, the idea of the New Jerusalem coming down is from the book of Revelation. I, I would say that, that the, the writer would be right in sync with that, even if he doesn't use that language. That that, that, that is, is, is um, how he would want us to see... Um, 
or, or to conceptualize um, what is the uh, the future for the church. The, the, the Jerusalem coming down really, uh, um, you know, he uses the language, the city which is to come. Well, I guess maybe that would be a better kind of, a more explicit kind of connection in, in chapter 13. So that uh, um, the city is there and yet it's coming. Now we're starting to get into the already not yet structure of the uh, of the of the writer's eschatology, which we will see to be just that. Now, um, the question, the primary question I want to raise here in bringing this verse in, what is the range of reference in Kephaleon? When the writer says the main point in the things we are saying what, so far as the, as, as the document is, is concerned now, the, the, the scope of the document, what is the reference? Uh, how, uh, if we see this as sort of the center of, a, of uh, at this point in the document, chapter 8-1, roughly in the middle, uh, where is, uh, what is the circumference of this center, as it were? Now, that's a kind of question that is certainly prompted by the text, but it's also the kind of question that uh, exegetically it's not possible to answer by an appeal to a particular text or a set of texts which, which clench the matter, as it were. Um, rather, you can only answer that question uh, as you analyze the structure of uh, the document and so then the answer will be open to a certain amount of debate, um, and I don't want to get so involved in that here, but let me just uh, uh, encourage us to look at it this way. Uh, clearly, when the writer says the main point in the things we are saying, he's thinking from 414 to 1031. I don't think there's anyone that could deny that that uh, we have at least those boundaries. But now, uh, consider this further. When we cons uh, think of the place of this section, 414 to 1031, when we, when we think of uh, the, uh, the, the place that this occupies in the book as a whole, and the substantial way, then, in which the notion of the priestly activity of Christ is introduced already on this side in 2.17 and 18, and the way in which the concept of Christ as high priest figures prominently, say, at 13.11 and following, and um, further, then, um, I should have brought this in. The fact that what is much, what what is emphatic in two seven and eight, two seventeen and eighteen, is clearly indicated in the reference to the ascension, very close to the language that we have here in eight one. Uh, the, the reference to the ascension of Christ always back in one, already back in one three. You can see where uh, I'm going in this line of reflection. 
uh, it's not too far off, to put it negatively, to apply 8.1, this expression, to apply this to the entire document. The writer is telling us now that the heavenly high priestly ministry of Christ is the main point of the document. Uh, at the very least, we can see it's a central conception. But I'm wanting to suggest to us, at least as a working hypothesis, a hypothesis that may be subject to, uh, to fine-tuning or correction, but as a working hypothesis, it's, it's useful for us to see that the kafalion, the main point of the book of Hebrews, is the heavenly high priestly ministry of Christ. So now, uh, to draw the threads of our, our, our discussion so far together, um, if uh, perhaps I've been laboring it so much that I've, I've obscured the larger um, profile, but if we take our, third, our second point and our third point together, that is... 1322 and 8.1 now, you see we're brought to this conclusion. That according to the writer himself, the document is a word of exhortation in which the heavenly high priestly ministry of Christ is the main point. Or as I have it on um, at the top of uh, of the um, the way I've, I've phrased it in in the in describing Roman numeral one, the writer is saying Christology and Paranasis in combination is what the book is all about. Um, or another way we could, we could perhaps phrase it. Uh, the writer is telling us that we ought to approach the document as a whole as it teaches us about the priestly ministry of Christ in the light of the situation for which exhortation is relevant. It deals, to be sure, with the high priestly ministry of Christ, substantial doctrine, but it does that. It deals with the doctrine in light of the situation, the concrete situation, for which exhortation is relevant. So what I'm wanting to conclude here, uh, say it yet again, that 1322 and 8.1 are, as it were, the axes the axes around which the study of Hebrews ought to revolve for getting us into the teaching as a whole. Uh, they, these verses set the parameters. They fix the, fix the dimensions. They uh, define, to run out of mathematical images here, they define the matrix in which the writer develops his thought.
So now, um, at least in a preliminary way, I hope you can appreciate that it has not been arbitrary for me to, um, to signal out, as, as a first area of working, um, Christology and Paranasis, or eschatology and ethics, because the eschatological dimension hasn't come out yet, but that will uh, we'll be doing that presently. Um, this, it seems uh, to me, is where the writer wants us to come first um, in opening up uh, the document as a whole. All right, what we want to do next is um, develop in the light of what we've just been doing, and this will be a, a, our discussion now under B, will be um, um, a further defining of the total situation, talking about the eschatological structure, the eschatological structure, and as that, we've already gotten in, in view this, this notion of situation as defined by the, uh, at least defined by the Paranasis, um, this will um, enable us to, to see more clearly the situation of the church as uh, the writer uh, sees things. And what we'll do here is um, take our cue from our key verses in, in the analysis that we are, have given and suggest that there are two factors, two factors that define uh, the eschatological, that determine the eschatological structure or are, uh, maybe that's not the best way to, um, that um, are, are central at least to the eschatological structure and at the same time explain the situation of the church and those are the factors of Christology and Paranasis. Let's first of all look at things along the Christological line or axis as they point us to the eschatology. And uh, here, let's uh, begin at the beginning. One, one, and two. One, one, and two. So uh, turn there, um, if you will. God, having previously, or having uh, formerly, long ago, spoken to the fathers in the prophets, through the prophets, at various times and in different ways, has in these last days spoken to us in the Son. Now, this is, these are the opening words of the document opening words that provide a quite sweeping panorama or perspective. Um, as you have had perhaps a, a occasion to see already, and, and some of you at least will have been uh, in work with me where I, I, I really emphasize this point in some detail, and I, want, I don't want to go into um, a lot of, uh, a lot of repetition here, uh, but what the writer is involved uh, what the writer does here, in effect, is survey the history of Revelation, bring into view Revelation as a historical phenomenon, 
here more than any place in the in the New Testament is is the clear warrant for the notion of a history of Revelation. He surveys, uh, he brings into view the whole of the history of Revelation, and uh, uh, to put it in other words, uh, what the writer provides here from the outset is sort of the the the. Um, the umbrella over the everything that he's going to go on to say is a redemptive historical or, orientation or perspective. Everything in the document is set in a redemptive historical perspective and that explicitly. Now the theme that is introduced here, the, the, the more specific theme that, that functions, is also uh, clearly, clearly basic, but also it's, it's central throughout the book, and that is the theme of the speech or the word of God. The speech or the word of God. And here we have particularly a contrast, a certain contrast within the speaking of God as a historical activity. We have a contrast between, uh, and the contrast comes out in the prepositional phrases. Uh, We have a, a contrast between God's speaking in the prophets and his speaking in the Son. And let's uh, focus in on that that contrast um, just uh, a bit um, further. Looking particularly at at the one side, the in we owe side of the um, of the contrast. in a couple of uh, uh, areas we can accent. For one thing, the writer tells us that God's speech in the Son has taken place, as he says, ep escatu ton hemeron tuton. Literally, in the last part of these days, or in these last days, now, how are we to understand that qualification, that, that temporal uh, qualification given by that prepositional phrase? Well, further light is shed here, uh, particularly by the qualification that we find in 926 in the statements that's there. So if you could just flip over there for a moment. Uh, Come back to one one. Uh, the point that um, uh, the writer is making is to contrast Christ's death as a sacrifice with the sacrifices of the old order. Um, and his point is that Christ does not offer sacrifice, offer himself um, 
frequently since it was necessary that he suffer frequently from the foundation of the world. But now once, and now the prepositional phrase is, at the end of the ages, episuntalea ton ionon. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to for the putting away of sin through his sacrifice. And then after the statement about uh, judgment in verse 27, just to fill out the thought here, uh, he will, having once offered himself uh, to take away the sins of many, he will appear without sin a second time to those for salvation to those who eagerly await him. But particularly, uh, what we're told in 926, uh, well, look, see, again, the thought is that of revelation, the revelation that has taken place in the Son. Uh, it's not so much the language of speech as it is in 1, 1, and 2, but it's the language of manifestation, um, the verb used. By the way, I think that's a pointer to the fact that, um, without getting us too far afield here, that the language of speech in, um, in Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 should not simply be understood in the case of Christ as we usually do theologically referring to verbal revelation, but in clothe, in, encompasses both what we would distinguish as word and deed revelation both word and deed revelation. Uh, what the writer can then now express in 926 as the manifestation of Christ. But now we're told that, um, that what is said at the beginning to have taken place in these last days is at the end of the ages. So clearly those two prepositional phrases in uh, 1, 1, and 2, and 926 uh, qualify each other. And um, what? Um, and, and by the way, notice also in 9:26 that that happens in a very broad historical, uh, by means of a, a broad historical uh, contrast. He doesn't simply say at the end of the age, but he contrasts that with the found, uh, from the foundation of the world. So, anticipating what we're going to point out in just a second, uh, if you will. Uh, protology and eschatology are here uh, telescoped in one statement. The beginning and the end um, are, are brought together uh, as part of a single uh, perspective or outlook. Now, uh, what 926 makes clear then is that the author's thinking is moving within the framework of the two-eon construct. Now again, I'm, I'm assuming that this is uh, uh, something that you've all uh, been exposed to in, in a course on, um, if, if you work through Pauline theology with me, you have, and probably uh, uh, most any approach to uh, Paul um, would have, have brought that out. In other words, uh, the writer shows himself, if you will, on the same eschatological wavelength as Jesus during his earthly ministry and teaching, and then Paul. That is, looking at things in terms of the construct taken over uh, from intertestamental uh, Judaism in terms of the explicit terminology, but uh, really conceptually rooting in Old Testament revelation itself, uh, 
the distinction between this and that or the coming eon, a construct that embraces the whole of the movement of the creation, if you will, from, from the beginning, from creation to consummation, from the alpha point to the omega point. That so that such that the uh, distinction between um, the two ages or two eons is comprehensive. Remember, there's no other period involved. It's consecutive. The one follows directly on the other, the age to come on this age. And they are also um, antithetical as the original creation order has become subject um, to uh, corruption and death because of sin. Uh, in contrast, the eschatological age will be cleared from that. Now, the division point, according to this term, uh, terminology, is the suntaleia. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is an anapenal accent. Uh, the end, particularly, of this age. Uh, so that the writer, you see, is here more clearly even than in 1, 1, and 2, saying that what has already taken place in the manifestation, the revelation in Christ, is eschatological in character. A very clear assertion then, um, taking these two statements, uh, that the writer sees the work of Christ uh, as eschatological in its scope, its qualification. He teaches, if you will, then in concert with the other New Testament writers, realized eschatology. I want to make that point now without uh, uh, continuing to explore it, uh, but later on we're going to want to come back and touch on the fact that, that in, in the contemporary uh, uh, debates, um, the effort is made from time to time to distance the eschatology of Hebrews, say, from the eschatology of Paul, that um, the writer of Hebrews has allegedly become captive to, uh, to more uh, ahistorical, Hellenistic uh, uh, Greek modes of thinking, so that he is in tension with the uh, teaching of um, of Paul, say, with his historical eschatological orientation. But that's sort of, um, without getting into the, to the case that's made for that point of view, it inevitably just rides roughshod over what the writer himself says at the outset. Um, so, uh, and then a further uh, factor to consider here is what the writer has to say in 6.5, speaking now about the work of the Holy Spirit and the present experience in the church of the Holy Spirit, he refers to uh, the Holy Spirit's activity as involving dunames, dunames, melontos, ionos, powers of the age to come. So that would be another clear example of making use of the two-eon construct. Um, and, and just reinforces um, 
of what we've been seeing here. So, um, these verses, uh, as we say, provide a clear indication that the, um, that the writer of Hebrews um, is of an essentially eschatological bent in his teaching, is on the same wavelength with Paul and, and, um, uh, and Jesus. And let me um, parenthetically add in here, since I have it in my notes, uh, from a time when I used to teach a, a course covering um, uh, the, the, all of the general epistles, um, just notice briefly the way in which the, uh, the other writers in this portion of the canon uh, sound the same tone. I think it's important to uh, to see this so far as the uh, uh, to be aware of this so far as an appreciation of the overall unity of New Testament eschatology in the midst of the diversity, um, the overall unity that's there. But just um, maybe we can even sneak this in before uh, the bell. Um, here we have the key materials in Hebrews. Uh, these eschatological I'm, I'm, I'm working at it primarily in terms of, uh, of, of prep, qualifying prepositional phrases but uh, the book of James um, talks in chapter 5-3 uh, about the danger of hoarding up riches in the last days and look at the verses that, that, that follow um, um, on that First uh, Peter 1.20 has a statement that is remarkably close to Hebrews 9.26 um, in the contrast that he was uh, that Christ as the sacrifice was foreknown before the foundation of the world manifested in these last times. Second um, Peter 3.3 3, uh, talks about the mockers that are going to come in the last days. And that's very close to what Jude 18 says about the last time. And First um, John 2.18 addresses the church as being in a situation which is described as the last hour. So there's a variation in vocabulary uh, and we should expect that that could develop for uh, stylistic reasons, if nothing other. But uh, notice, notice the, the close, the the, uh, the the parallel, the similarity between these qualifying expressions and the uh, what we find in the book of Hebrews. Um, so all told, um, the. Um, the unity of eschatological outlook of the New Testament is not difficult to defend. Um, certainly there are, are differences in accent, and we're going to want to appreciate uh, the way in which the writer of Hebrews uh, says things um, that uh, are not the way, are, are put uh, in a way that is not the way that, that Paul has put them, and yet without really being any tension or, or disharmony. All right, um, so then next time 
by next week, uh, in addition to all the other reading you're going to do, you will have read the, the book of Hebrews.